The Spectator magazine combines incisive political analysis with books and arts reviews of unrivaled authority. Subscribe today for just £12 and receive a 12-week subscription in print and online, plus a £20 Amazon gift voucher, absolutely free. Go to spectator.co.uk forward slash voucher. Hello and welcome to the Americano podcast, a series of discussions about American power, politics and society. On each episode, I will talk to an American expert or an expert on America about something that's going on in America in 2023. I am delighted to be joined today by Nico Vorobyov, who is a journalist and the author of a book called Dope World. And we're going to be talking about prohibition because Nico's written a very interesting piece for Spectator World entitled The Mistakes of Prohibition Still Haunt Us. And it is uh, 90 years, as some readers may be aware, since prohibition was ended. Um, the 18th Amendment was repealed. Uh, it was introduced in 1919. And it's extraordinary to think, isn't it, Nico, that it went on for that long because it's, it's it, we now associate it with bootlegging, gangsterism and so on but it also coincided with uh the roaring 20s um what's the biggest misperception do you think about the prohibition era first of all freddie uh thank you very much for having me on um i think one of the biggest uh misconceptions is that a lot of people look back at it now and they think that the the movement for prohibition was just led by a bunch of like Bible thumpers or like shrill, shrill women like um, I for, I forgot her name, but the one who went around with hatchets smashing up bars, but actually is uh is quite a quite a wide uh, diverse range of actors were were responsible for pushing sobriety. So you had the early feminists who were like trying to protect their kids from black guys and making sure the man in the house was sober enough to put food on the table. You had industrialists like Henry Ford uh, wanting to keep his workers sober. You had the KKK not really big on all those Catholic and Jewish immigrants coming over for whom drinking was part of their cultures. Um, so yeah, it's quite a wide uh, coalition, quite a wide actually, quite a wide consensus on on prohibition when it originally began in the early twentieth yes. century. And people associate it with the deep Puritanism at the heart of America. So you think it's not just a sort of religious, uh, it, didn't, it didn't just have religious origins, but, but I mean, certainly the disgust at alcohol, at saloons, at sort of sinful iniquity that was going on, had, had religious origins, I think that's fair to say. Yeah, certainly that that's true, but that was just one of, of several factors. Like, I didn't think it that would have pushed the, the Volstead Act and the 18th Amendment into law alone. Another factor was, interestingly, um, World War One. So uh, if you go through, like, you can, we can see this quite consistently in American history to do with all sorts of drugs. So in the beginning, opium, opium dens were banned. The first drug law in America was opium dens were banned because they thought that Chinese, like, railroad workers were using it to seduce white women, opium to seduce white women. Um, cocaine was banned partly after... There was like a hysteria about black people in the South getting human superhuman powers and sheriffs being unable to take them down. So in World War One, so the bogeyman was the Germans and the 
Nobody wanted it. It was like it became unpatriotic to have anything to do with those beer swilling Huns rampaging <laughs> across Europe. So, yeah, anti German sentiment also played a big, I think it might have played a pivotal role in specifically why it came in after World War One. Yes. And uh, as you talk about in the piece, you had the creation of organized crime or the, the sort of uplifting of organized crime in this time. And it was prohibition that really pushed the mafia into into what we know today is, is what you argue in the piece. Yeah, I mean, so obviously there were organized crime and gangs before, like, you know, obviously in the like in the Martin Scorsese movie Gangs of New York, from, from what I understand, it's a fairly accurate uh, general picture of what was happening at that time but it was it was generally they're just basically just uh street gangs or like low-level criminals like the the italian mafia mainly they're preying on just the italian community there was like the black hand extortion scheme things like that but prohibition that's what really kind of turned into a sort of more of like a corporate as a sort of a corporate element to it like the mob became more than just a bunch of hoodlums like specifically in immigrant ghettos but like a criminal corporation that spread across America. And uh, partly it was that people actually had a lot of disposable cash, wasn't it? Because there was a, they, these were economic boom times. Um, and so a lot of disposable cash was going into this black economy. Yeah. And obviously, like when we think of like even just the phrase, the, the roaring 20s, you know, it's uh, like we think glamour. We think like the flapper dancers and the speakeasies and jazz music parties. I'd say that isn't like entirely accurate how the 1920s and Prohibition was, you know, for everyone. If you watch that new um, Scorsese movie, uh, Killers of the Fire Moon, that's in the Prohibition era. It's far from, far from glamorous lifestyles that people lead there. But uh, it's certainly true that the, the, and up until the, the Wall Street cash, the economy was doing great. And yeah, people wanted, to, people wanted to spend that money and they wanted to spend that money on booze. Yes. And then, uh, of course, it was ended in 1933, which was still, you know, deep depression, America. And so, you know, is there a is there a connection there between the repeal of the of prohibition and economic turmoil? Yeah, it's uh, I'd say there's a there's a strong connection. Well, aside from aside from like the the kind of more obvious examples of prohibition failing in the form of Al Capone and like gangland shootings that sort of very obvious failings of prohibition. Also, like since it was the the depression, the government kind of wanted to A, cheer people up a bit and B, put more money in their pockets and also, you know, the tax coffers. So I think, yeah, that played a, a strong role in the decision to to repeal prohibition. Now, I think I know from your writing that you have quite strong opinions about drugs and the legalization of drugs and so on. And as you say in this piece, there was 13 years of, of the war on booze, war on alcohol, but the war on drugs started in this era or started around this time and has been with us ever since with disastrous consequences, you say. Can you explain your argument a bit for listeners who might not have read it? Sure. Well, I think the the, the, the biggest, at least when it comes to America... The biggest impact from from the drug crisis is obviously the the overdose crisis, right? So we're now on. I don't have the exact figures with me, but I know it's surely over a hundred thousand uh, fatal drug overdoses or drug poisonings in America today, from 
illicit drugs, I mean, like heroin, fentanyl and all that. Mm. And we kind of saw that playing out in a, on a smaller scale in, uh, in Prohibition. So during Prohibition, like not everybody could afford, you know, the fancy imported whiskey smuggled from the Bahamas. Uh, a lot of it was just uh, people making moonshine in distilleries. And the, that stuff could, if it, if it wasn't made properly, it could make you go blind. It could kill you. You also had a lot of um, industrial alcohol, like wood alcohol. And then they just mixed that down with some ginger beer or whatever to hide the taste and, and sold. And obviously that's not a great thing to be putting in your body either. And that all happened because like, it's not it's not regulated at all. Like the, these are, these are just uh, criminal entrepreneurs, basically. And the same thing is it's happening now. So if you look at drugs like heroin and fentanyl, they actually have uh, legitimate medical uses, like um, heroin. So it's known, known as dimorphine, uh, and it's given to women during childbirth as a as a painkiller in hospitals. It's a fairly standard procedure. So there are like safe contexts for these drugs to be used in. However, it's one thing uh, being given heroin, fentanyl at a clinic or at a hospital, and it's another thing buying it from a guy in a trench coat in a black in a back alley. Like you don't yes. know what you're going to get. You don't know the potency. You don't know the strength. You don't know what conditions it's been produced in. So in a way, it's kind of like the the, the modern day equivalent of of bathtub gin, and much much deadlier as well. Yes. There is a lot of talk about the role China is playing in the fentanyl crisis. Can you tell us what you know about that? Sure. So initially, uh, this is go this is about ten years ago. So initially, China was the main supplier of fentanyl to the United States because fentanyl wasn't actually illegal in China. So it's simply made in uh, chemical factories, and I believe you could even just buy it online. Like if you go on Chinese websites, you can just order a kilo, two kilos of of fentanyl and have it mailed over. Um, I believe during the the Trump administration, they managed to to uh, they managed to pressure China into clamping down fentanyl itself. Now, what's happening is, um, so the ingredients to make fentanyl still aren't illegal. So what's happening is now the the Mexican uh, narco cartels they're buying the importing the ingredients to make fentanyl from China, making fentanyl themselves. Mm. Again, under less than less than clinical conditions, and then shipping that over to the states. So, as I understand it now, uh, Biden's trying to reach a new agreement with China to clamp down on the the ingredients, the the precursors, as they're known for fentanyl. But I think that all that's going to happen now is it's just going to go either a further underground or b the the outsourcing of the ingredients is going to go to another country like India, for example, which also has. A huge chemical industry also has, uh, I think India probably has a lot more potential for corruption, uh, official corruption than China. So I don't think it's so much going to stop much, uh, anything. It's just going to shift the problem to different entrepreneurs, different horizons. And it's difficult for non-Americans to grasp because although, you know, Europeans and Brits have our own drug problems and there's an increasing fentanyl problem in London, as I understand, but we don't have a problem of this scale because of the prescription opioid crisis that America had. We don't have a similar problem because if you speak to, if you meet most Americans, the chances are they know someone or close to someone, someone in their family has had an overdose or is addicted to 
uh, opioids. It, it's a it's hard for us to gauge the scale of this crisis in America, um, except through sort of, you know, the occasional book like your book or, you know, uh, Netflix documentaries and so on. Right. And I think uh, we can we can say that's probably true for most of Europe, even though uh, fentanyl was first uh, synthesized, first created here in Europe. I think it was in it was in Belgium, I believe. But uh, we, there are several key differences. So, uh, for example, we have uh, the NHS in, in Britain and other countries in Europe. They have similar sort of systems, unlike in America, where it, if you don't have insurance, it can be quite hard to pay for your operation, whereas it's much easier to get an operation done if, if you're of a lower income in Europe. People aren't uh, stuck around for such a long time. Uh, they didn't need painkillers for such a long, extensive period of time. So they, the, less people get the, the physical dependence. That's wow. uh, that's one part of it. Another part of it is, and I wrote another uh, piece about this in The Spectator, actually. Um, so we had we had the, a fairly consistent flow of, of heroin from Afghanistan. The fentanyl didn't really it didn't really enter the, the supply chain just because the, the supply chain from Afghanistan was so smoothly organized uh but of course now that the taliban have waged one of the few successful i say successful in air quotes uh war on drugs so i believe the uh poppy opium poppy cultivation of afghanistan has dropped by over 95 percent the past year so now that it looks like the the heroin pipeline from afghanistan might be drying up i'm afraid that we might we might soon see uh, synthetic opioids like fentanyl are uh, making more of an appearance in Europe and the UK as well. So is that the case? If you're if you're a, a, a heroin user, an opioid addict, you would prefer one would prefer to have heroin than fentanyl. It's just that fentanyl is more available now. Um, well, I have I haven't tried uh, heroin or fentanyl myself. <laughs> I unfortunately, wasn't so I wasn't suggesting you have. But I've been I've been told by by people in the know that heroin has more of kind of a a warm sort of fuzzy homely kind of feel to it, whereas fentanyl it feels more kind of artificial, even though it's stronger. And yeah, I think given the choice, a lot of people would would prefer um heroin to fentanyl but yeah again it's an issue of availability it's just so much also it's also just so much easier for the traffickers to move fentanyl than heroin because fentanyl is so much more potent so it takes up much less space in the trunk of your car or wherever you're smuggling it across the borders you don't need so much of it and that's actually another thing that we saw in um in prohibition so Beer became uh, increasingly harder to find, but whiskey and other hard spirits, because obviously they take up less volume, they're more concentrated, so they're easier to yes. transport. That's a very interesting point. And what, Nico, what's your position on Are you pro-legalization and regulation of everything? Um, well, it depends with uh, with with which with which drugs is um what things um so for example with something like cannabis I think that yeah that should be just treated the same as alcohol now we can have it sold in licensed premises like Amsterdam style coffee shops when it comes to kind of heroin and and stuff like that um I don't think that's a great idea you know just to have it in in Sainsbury's next to the frozen fish aisle. The, there is a, the, this was actually known as the British system, the, the system of, of heroin on prescription. It worked rather well until it was 
abolished in the 70s like if you look at uh, so basically, if if you if you were if it had a physical dependency on opioids, you could get it prescribed by your doctor, and then you would know the the quality, and people would be able to keep track of the uh, the system would be able to keep track of prescriptions. There wouldn't be so much leakage to the black market. And then when we had the Misuse of Drugs Act, technically, yeah, we still have. Um, there was a clinic in Middlesbrough that was prescribing heroin until recently, but it's become. A lot, uh, a lot harder to get. It's become a much smaller system. It's been scaled down. So yeah, I, uh, I think that like certain, certain, um, certain drugs should be legalized. Like cannabis, certain drugs should be medicalized, um, like heroin. And I think with like some with something like cocaine, which is which is quite toxic still. Um, I think there should be some some debate how to how to manage that. I think you're sort of swimming against the tide to a certain extent, aren't you? Because, I mean, while cannabis has been legalised essentially in, in many states, it, you know, the tide of government opinion is turning against harder drugs. Um, and I think the prohibitionist sentiment uh, that you describe in your piece is, is still very much with us. Uh, today I think it's and it actually I think it has majority support I was quite surprised for instance in Britain that uh, the smoking ban uh, because it was added to under 16 year olds I don't know if you know about this um, what has majority support Uh, I think there is a there's a prohibition tends to be more popular than people realize it would you agree yeah, certainly. Um, I think part of the part of that is because at least in I mean, depend depends which drug and which culture we're talking about. But yeah, I think that because just we've been we've been living with uh with under various forms of prohibition for so long uh, worldwide, that it's just we're just used to it becoming the the norm or the the default. Um, yeah, uh, but I do think that in a in a in a sense, um, some per, some perceptions are are shifting. Um, for example, in America. Now they have quite a few um, safe uh, safe consumption facilities, like in in New York and in in Vancouver, I believe, where if you're a drug addict, you can go there and imbibe your intoxicant of choice. And they have medical staff on, like they they have medical staff present there. So if something happens, like your life can easily be saved. That's not the case. If you were doing it in an alleyway somewhere or in like in a in a dingy apartment by yourself, because then if you if you overdose, you know who's gonna who's gonna help you. I think that's quite a quite a step forward. But yeah, the just the the sheer scale of the of the fentanyl crisis, I think, is definitely turning public sentiment into quite a prohibitionist direction. You also have the the Republicans in America basically threatening to declare war on Mexico over the cartels or threatening military action of some kind, which I don't think is a great idea either. Mm. And so you think the war on drugs is not going to end anytime soon? Um, I think like gradually, little by little, it's gonna, it's probably gonna, gonna wind down. So certainly um, cannabis, I think it's just a matter of, of time when it becomes uh, legalized nationwide, federally across America, and then Britain will soon follow. Uh, I think you know with with things like psychedelics and and ecstasy, that's that's been last year that they were legalized in Australia for medical purposes. So I think we're mm. we're probably going to see something like that, like a very slow trickle where 
some at least certain substances will be given more leniency than others. I'm not sure if we'll ever be rid of of prohibition. I think you know we sh- we should probably should have some some degree of of prohibition, not necessarily criminalization, but like I didn't support selling fentanyl in um in in Sainsbury's, for example. But I think like over the years, it's going to be a very gradual process as it winds down. We should probably clarify for legal reasons that Sainsbury's has no intention of selling uh, heroin anytime soon. Uh, but uh, Nico, I think we will wrap it up there. Thank you very much for joining us. Um, and uh, please come on Americano again. Thank you very much for listening to the Americano podcast. I would like to thank my brilliant producer, Natasha Farose, and the rest of the Spectators broadcast team. If you like the podcast, please leave a review on whatever platform you are listening to us on. Thank you very much. God bless America.